Hello and welcome to the MDDDS podcast. I'm Dr. Kyle Fagala, and I'm excited because tonight is a special group. We're calling it an outreach group, and we are going to be studying the gospel. We'll be asking the same five questions that we asked the previous five weeks. Who is God? Who am I? Who is Jesus? What is faith? And is death the end? And in all these five questions, we hope to answer uh, what the gospel is. We hope to answer why Jesus is important and why we need Jesus and why he answers the question of, is death the end? Um, So I hope this is the sort of thing that if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, that you feel comfortable sharing this with someone who is not, whether that's a friend or a colleague or just someone significant in your life. If you're listening to this and you're not a Christian and you don't believe, I hope the next 30 to 40 minutes is eye-opening, and I hope it brings up more questions that you'd like to have answered. And if that's the case, please feel free to reach out to me. You can find me, Kyle Fagala, on Facebook. Uh, You can also find David Flat on Facebook. And it is David that will be mostly leading this group tonight. I'll be chiming in here and there, and I really hope that you enjoy it. All right, guys, thank you all so much for coming tonight. Um, I have been gone for the past two or three weeks, or we've been gone, so all day. I've been looking forward to seeing you guys. And one of the things I think is neat about a group that meets regularly is you start developing relationships and, you know, see you guys walk through the door. And you're like, man, look who's here, you know. So it's just good to see you guys. And I feel like the beginning of kind of special relationship, a group is kind of forming, like you said, community. So that's, uh, that's kind of neat, kind of special. So hopefully we got good teaching and community and you kind of mix that. That makes for a special Monday night. So hope you guys feel that way. I'm feeling that way and been looking forward to tonight all day so um like kyle said we are going to do what we call outreach group uh, tonight and so the idea is we spent the last five weeks kind of really specifically going through the five different perspectives on the gospel and then tonight we're just going to kind of review it all so i think uh probably a good way to describe it is like this is like if you had a big test and you used to you know went for five weeks learning all the material and then you got your like review day this is just the high points and so Kyle actually um, you know put this sheet of paper together and uh, with a verse and everything but I think it's pretty cool because like on one sheet of paper you've got like basically the gospel and then like kind of key gospel verses and it's just all there on like one sheet of paper so um, I don't know if you're the kind of person that memorizes things or that kind of wants to have that handy or take a picture of it and put it in your phone uh, just a really I think a, a resource that I'm, I'm pretty proud of that kind of puts together some really core uh, truths about life so all that being said um, Kyle and I are gonna we're gonna go back and forth so we'll kind of ping pong tonight back and forth so I'll do points one three and five and Kyle will do points two and four anyone like has a, a thought or a revelation or something they want to like throw out there I mean do that that's kind of what tonight's about it's maybe a little less formal and we just kind of talk as we go so the first first question we said of the five questions we want to ask when we're considering the gospel is who is God so I think almost every great idea in the world is going to start with an understanding of, of God so there I don't know that there's a great a way to think about the world politically or your family or socially or culturally that doesn't first acknowledge that there's a sovereign God that created the universe. And so then from that flows uh, great ideas. And so, of course, the greatest idea being the gospel is no, is no different. So the identity of God is really what the gospel is based on. So we said at the beginning that God is both holy and loving. God is both holy and loving. Sometimes people call these the, the core attributes of God. Um, so these are the things that that are um, that that don't change and that kind of define God's 
um, identity. And then from that, we, we run into the, to the um, other attributes of God, which we'll actually talk about later this year, like God's omnipotence, God's omnipresence, God's omniscience. But all that flows from His identity as the greatest or the most possible holy being and the most possible loving being. And then from that, you can kind of derive what else God is. So um, I guess let's just do the verse reading like we usually do. We'll just kind of go around this way. Is that okay? We'll, we'll wrap it around. So, um, yeah, so maybe we'll start with a, the, like, the theme verse of the whole series, which is Romans 3, 21 through 26. So um, somebody I really respect said if he, if he could take one paragraph with him on a desert island, you know, one paragraph of Scripture, this would be it. So I, I don't know if that's exactly right. I'd have to think about how I would answer that question. But I, I do think if you understand the words in this paragraph, you kind of get the gospel. So on your paper there is, I think that's, I, mean, I think that's the message. So um, maybe that might be helpful to kind of see it in like, maybe 21st century language, how it would be said. I'm actually going to read it from the NIV. Um, my favorite translation is the ESV. I think the NIV is also a good translation. Um, but then you've got the message there. You can, could kind of just be, you know, maybe something you could read for some perspective. But here's, uh, here's how the NIV reads in that paragraph. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And He did it, this is um, allowing Jesus to die, He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time. So I think this is a key phrase. So as to be just, so in the cross God maintains His justice, He punishes sins, and the one who justifies those. He also, He's not only just, but He's the justifier. He forgives us our sins who have faith in Jesus. So that is the gospel, Romans 3, 21 through 26. So that's, that's a good one to, to ponder and kind of think through and memorize. Good, good text. So um, we said God is both holy and loving. A, God is holy and set apart. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. <clears throat> all right. Uh, so God is a standard for moral purity and is perfectly free from all sin. So to be holy means to be set apart, to be removed from sin. God is also love. 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 8, 4, 16. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So it's almost like John is like writing philosophy here. I mean, he says like God is love. Core identity of God is love. That's obviously a, a deeply biblical idea. So God's love is self-giving for our benefit. It's affectionate, caring, and it's active. And we talked about what all those mean when we went through the who is God 
<coughs> chapter. So this sets up the tension that we talked about. So how can holiness and love, justice and grace, come together in God? So there's kind of esoteric verse that probably you know we've never talked about or memorized before, but Proverbs 15, 17, verse 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. So I think this verse is interesting because it explains the tension there. So if you take a guilty person and you acquit them, then that is that's not righteous, right? That that is a good judge doesn't do that. At the same time, a good judge doesn't take an innocent person and condemn them. That's also a, a travesty. So, but what we're saying is that God has taken us as as people who are guilty of sin and allowed us to be forgiven in order to be in His presence. So there's a tension there <clears throat> because it seems like, at least on the surface, that God has done something that a good judge would not do. He's taken guilty sinners and said, oh, don't worry about the, the, that sin in your life. You can go ahead and be in, be in relationship with me even though I'm holy. So there's some tension there and, some, and there's got to be kind of some way to to resolve it or at least think through it. Um, so we kind of left the who is God section, not in a down spot, but I really want us to, I don't think you can understand the gospel if you don't really ponder for a second that there's a problem, right? And so we've talked about, you know, the problem we often think about is, man, God, how are you punishing, how are you condemning people? Why are you punishing people? That seems so unloving, you know, ungood. You know, that's not kind of the way that we would behave. That's a common cultural question. The Bible is actually asking the opposite question. <laughs> the Bible is asking, how can God welcome sinners in His presence and remain holy? So He's, lo- he's perfectly loving, so He loves sinners, but He's also pro- perfectly holy. He must be removed from sinners. And so the story of the Bible, the people of Israel, and how God preserved this remnant to bring about Jesus is the story of, of God working in history to relieve that tension. So that's that's who is God. Any questions about who is God or any comments? Okay. We just summarized who God is in about six sentences. That That's good. Uh, so there's a lot more that could be said. Um, the second question, who am I? And I like to th- like think about this as a question, if we're honest, uh, the answer that we're going to give for who am I is, is not what we would say. So like if you get on... Facebook or Twitter and you have like your little bio section and it's like 200 characters and you're like who is Will? Well, I'm a 28 yeah, 27? I'm a 27 year old, you know I'm married to my wife uh, I'm a radiology resident I like dogs and the outdoors or you know whatever Um, if it's me and I've got three kids and I'm an orthodontist, I have these interests you know, I'm not leading my who am I statement with I'm a sinner that's separated from a holy God, right? Um, and I think probably even more so if I'm asked, well, tell me about your spiritual life or, you know, tell me about what sort of person you are. I think most of it would say, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I think I'm a good guy. I go to church. Uh, we, we started this Bible study. We're trying to do that. You know, I, I read my Bible to my kids and we're trying to raise them to be good kids and all that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I think that there's nothing necessarily wrong in that it's just it's not ultimately what matters when it comes down to it it's sort of like if you had a delicious soup and then you dropped like a little bit of arsenic in it like it doesn't matter that like 99% of the soup was good 
there's the 1% that sort of condemns the whole, right? I'm not gonna eat that. You break a glass and it falls near your food, you're like, oh, I can't eat that, you know? Uh, and so the same is true of us that is, as sinners, whether we're a little bit of a sinner or a lot of bit of a sinner, it doesn't really matter. We're still condemned and we're still viewed the same way. Um, and so to fill in your blank, if you haven't figured it out already, uh, we are not radiology residents separated. We're, we're sinners separated from a holy God, okay? Um, and we have rebelled against God through sin. I think that's another statement that you could talk a long time about. But you could almost just claim ignorance of the whole thing and say, well, I didn't know I was rebelling against anyone. Um, but that kind of comes back to the conscience that's within all of us. We know when we're doing wrong. We know when we're being selfish. We know when we're sinning, uh, even if we don't have a knowledge of these things in particular. Um, our conscience acts on us to make us feel the guilt. Um, and then we try and cover it up maybe with more sin. But And then moving into B, and we'll have some Bible verses here, but read the statement, then we'll come back and get the verses. We are all guilty of sin. We're all held personally responsible for our sin. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. All right, so we are all guilty of sin. So let's, let's look at that first. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all have sinned. No one's been perfect uh, except for Jesus. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. All right, so we're all guilty of sin. Uh, whether, you know, however we want to view that, we've all sinned. I think everyone would agree with that. Uh, we're also held personally responsible for our sin. Ezekiel eighteen twenty. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So I love this verse because isn't it true that it seems like anyone makes a mistake there's always someone they want to blame for that mistake. It's like, well, it was the way I was raised. And really, I could explain, you know, this killing spree because my dad, you know, he just he didn't pay enough attention to me or something. It's like, whoa. And maybe there's some psychological truth to that, but the truth is of sin. It's not your dad's fault. It's not your grandpa's fault. Those sins have not been transferred to you. You know, there was that thinking back in those days. Um, the sins are yours. You're, you're responsible for them. They're, they're your sins, and you're going to be held responsible for them. Uh, and then Romans 14:12. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So isn't that scary? Um, I know in the Catholic Church they have like confession where you sit, you know, behind the little thing. I've never done that. I'd kind of, it kind of be interesting to do it, but and you have to like tell them what you've been doing, um, which I don't think most of us probably confess our sins. But to not even think about doing that to like a priest, but now you're doing it to God. Can you imagine? Like, oh, there's a lot of stuff I don't want to tell God. Um, I don't want to tell a priest, much, and I don't even, you know, it's not even my thing, you know, but I definitely don't want to tell God. Um, the thing is, he already knows it, right? But we're going to be held responsible for that. We're all going to have to give an account of the things we've done to God one day. Whether we believe in God or not, once we get there, we're going to have to give an account for that. Um, and then because of our sin, we are separated from God. So Genesis 3.23. All right, so original sin, it separated Adam and Eve from the garden. So they were forced out of the garden. It was blocked by an angel. They, they weren't able to return because of this sin, um, which is sort of like sort of the, the, the pattern for this, is that the Holy God has had, he's been forced to separate himself from sinners since the original man. And then because of this, we need a Savior. So Savior is your other blank there. Uh, Matthew 1, 21. 
All right, so if we don't believe that we're a sinner, all right, so if we, if we don't think that we're sinners or we don't think that sin's a real thing, then we don't really need anyone to save us, right? Like if you don't think there's any issues that you have, you don't think anyone needs you know, to save you from that. All right, so if, if we're like addicted to heroin and we're, we're, you know, we see the results of that in our lives and we're honest with ourselves, we'd say, well, I need someone to save me from this. I need, I need something to take me out of this. Um, the problem is, is that heroin you know, has a very clear impact on one's life. Uh, now, your judgment could be clouded by that and by other things and to where you'd say, I don't need any help. Okay, but I think in that situation, most people would do that. The truth is that even like lying or you know, gossiping, or like these, what we call like little you know, venial sins, little tiny sins, those are big enough sins to, again, to have ruined the pot of soup. Like, th those are big enough things that we need a Savior, and we need to realize that. I think that we either think that we will save ourselves by doing good stuff, or that, well, God would never send me to hell because, like, I'm a pretty good dude. Like, why would God do that? Kind of like what David was saying. Um, or we just don't think that we need a Savior, right? But the, but the truth is, is that we do. Okay. All right, so that is question two. Back to you, Dave. Alright, so uh, we're talking about who is God. So God is the greatest who is holy and loving. And then who am I? So we're sinners separated from a holy God. <clears throat> and so that's the whole tension we've talked about, right? So how are you, if God must punish sin, but God also wants to love sinners, and what happens? So this is why, what if nothing else happened in this group, but we were a group of people that fell in love with Jesus, it would be worth, uh, worth our time. Because the answer to all these questions is, is Jesus, right? So you have this beautiful picture of the, a perfect and worthy sacrifice receiving the wrath that was due you, that, was, that you would have been just to receive. It's given to Jesus who acted as a perfect sacrifice in your place to allow relationship with God to be possible. And so let's... Maybe that's just a brief summary, but let's just look. That's what, that's what the text actually says. So who is Jesus? God's love sent Jesus to the cross, satisfying the wrath of God. And we talked about earlier, this is maybe this idea of the wrath of God. It's kind of fallen out of favor. It's, not, it's certainly not the Santa Claus God that is, is easier, maybe more popular to imagine, a God who just wants um, you know, everything in your life to be easy and comfortable and uh, kind of whatever you want goes. But I think it is the biblical picture of God, a God who is going to deal justly with sin, which, in, which includes His wrath on sin. And as forgiven sinners, we can now be in the presence of Holy God, in the presence of Holy God. Maybe a side story here. So all through the Old Testament, you hear this, you see this theme keep coming up again. People want to see God. They want to be with God. So that was the whole story of Job. Is Job wanted a counsel with God. That's if you read through Job, Job actually asked very little about wanting his suffering to end. I mean, he mentions it, but really, what he wants to do is he wants counsel. He wants the presence of God, and um, that's a whole another sidetrack about what we want and need during suffering. But then, so you see this whole story of the people of Israel, they want to see God, they want to be with God. And then you look at the end of the Bible in Revelation, I get, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Revelation 22, there's this verse that says, and they will see His face. That is a great blessing of, of humankind. That's what, that fulfills our ultimate desires, is to see the face of God, to be in His presence. And that's humanity's greatest problem, is we've lived in a way 
that, that makes that impossible. You, we can't be in the presence of the greatest possible being because the greatest possible being, by definition, is holy and must be separated from sin. So that's why what Jesus did is so special. So Jesus' life displays the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.22. That's me. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So... Um, we don't have time to go into all this tonight, but Jesus fulfilled the Old, Test- Old Testament law to be the perfect sacrifice. So He fulfilled the law we've all broken, and by being by being and by being fully God and fully man, He was able to 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 sit in the place of a perfect sacrifice when we're not able to, right? So He was able to be the Lamb that could receive the judgment and wrath of God. So the answer to the tension of the gospel. <laughs> is that God's love sent Jesus to the cross. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Satisfying the wrath of God, Romans three twenty five. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So wrath of God for our benefit. As forgiven sinners, we can now be in the presence of holy God. Hebrews 9. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, it was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews has such a beautiful picture of... um, the way that Jesus fulfills the Old, Te- the Old Testament law. So Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So we, we talked about that, but like the Day of Atonement and how they would go find the perfect lamb. Jesus fulfills all that. He is the perfect lamb. So he's worthy to receive the wrath that's due us. Oh, and in Revelation 21. So this may be my favorite text, <clears throat> um, and there's so much going on here. There's there's a lot of things going on here emotionally. I mean, you think about you talk about like what's happened this week. You think about like um, just the, the the evilness in the world, and not just evil, but suffering. Um, and the idea that that's all going to end one day is deeply comforting. And um, I, I think it, we make no apologies for that as Christians. There's there is an emotional. 
attractiveness to the idea of living in a world where there's no more death or crying or pain, when the old order of things will have passed away. No more earthquakes, no more hurricanes, no more mass shootings, no more terrorist attacks. Things will be set right. There's also a lot going on here theologically <coughs> that I, w- I wanted to point out. So think about, this is, I mean, this is like the second to last chapter of the Bible. This is the final scene of of uh, you know God's message to us of His Word. He says, And I hear a loud voice saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. So that, that's that, that like um, Jewish calling, the Israel cry, like they want to be with God. And um, John is saying here through his revelation that that day is coming. We will be with God. We will be His people. We will be in His presence. And that's all possible, of course, because Jesus satisfied the tension of the gospel, right? He received the wrath that was due our sins so that we, through faith, can be in relationship in the presence of God. So, um, the resurrection demonstrates the power of God. Colossians 2. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you are also raised with Him through your faith in the work of God, who raised Him from the dead, when you're dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So that's Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in response to the tension between holy God and sinful man. Okay. And then moving on into the fourth question, which is, what is faith? Um, I really enjoyed this night when we did that on, on what is faith. So... I don't think, was that the night where there was like two of us? Yeah. yeah. It was great. Yeah, Billy and Will and the whole crew. Lauren was there. Yeah, don't leave out Lauren. Don't sleep on Lauren. Um, all right, so this is, what is faith? All right, I think we kind of just understand what faith is. We talked about this as like, faith is believing in the unseen. You know, you can have faith in ghosts. You know, you can have, you have faith in a lot of things. Like, I have faith in my team that they're going to win this weekend, you know. Um, but this is a little bit deeper than just that. <laughs> Unless you're a Tennessee fan. And then you have no faith. That, that is worse. No, I have lots of faith that Much. Not yeah, there you go. You can have faith that they're going to lose. Yes, say, correct. Be positive. I am positive. Yeah, I'm. It's <laughs> funny. I am positive that you will have a new coach next season. Maybe this season. All right, so uh, we, we, we receive God's salvation through faith in Jesus. It is as simple as that. All right, but then we'll complicate it a little more. But, all right, so what is faith? And that's what we just talked about. What is faith? Well, there's a lot of things you could say. But biblical faith is maybe a little bit deeper than that. And I think for us, at least for myself, like understanding it as a twofold thing is an interesting way to think about it. So the first part of it is, I think, the part that we always go to mentally. And that's the belief part. Uh, and we, you know, that's, that's the first dimension. We, we believe Christ's testimony. We, we believe that, you know, he, he, he came to earth. He died. Uh, he was resurrected. We believe that that. That means something very significant. We believe that. Uh, in general, belief is a judgment of the mind that a particular idea is true. Okay? So like I said earlier, we believe a lot of things. All right, but faith, biblical faith, is deeper than that. So the second thing is trust. So we have belief and we have trust. And without trust, the belief doesn't really mean a whole lot. All right? You, I mean, we could get into that deeper, and we'll talk about the action that follows, but... You could believe that the rainforest should be saved, and you could hashtag that rainforest should be saved, and never do anything else with it. And what sort of you know belief system is that, right? It's kind of shallow. All right. So the trust is the second part. So trust is a decision of the will to act upon what we believe. 
And so it's not enough to believe something. You've got to do something about it. And if you believe it, really, you, you should naturally do something about it. All right, so as Christians, we trust our time, possessions, abilities, and eternal destinies into the hands of Jesus Christ. All right, so let's do this verse, and then we'll chat a little bit about this. But 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Hmm. Um, so we've been appointed to his service, and uh, we, we should both feel a responsibility from that, we should also feel a gratitude. Like I'm so grateful and thankful that I've been born in a position to know Jesus and to know God my whole life. But what comes with that is like the Spider-Man verse of like with great responsibility or sorry, with great power, power comes great responsibility. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I botched the Spider-Man thing. Shame on me. Sorry, Stanley. Um, <laughs> but it's true. Like we've, I mean, in this room, how, how much, how much more could you want from life? You know, we're all wealthy, I mean, it's, and I get dental loans, but uh, we're, we're all like, you know, learning to be doctors and things like that. And a lot of us are married and uh, we have great lives, right? We're living in the South, the richest time in the richest area in the world in all of human history. I think you say it like that. Like, it couldn't be any better than it is right now. So that, there comes a lot of responsibility with that. Um, I do like this. I made some notes is that on that night, um, Lauren talked about how the belief part for her isn't difficult. But she said that the trust part is, and she's probably being modest, but I think that there are a lot of people that would say, yeah, that's kind of how I am. Like I, like, I believe this. I have no doubts about that. Maybe occasionally, but it's the doing something about it. It's the acting on it that I struggle with. I like, though, that Will said that it wasn't the trust part that's hard. He feels like he's doing the things that one who believes would do, but it's kind of the belief part that's, that's tough, um, which brought up this kind of interesting thing of, all of us struggle with different parts of that at different times. And I think for a lot of us, if, if our spiritual life is a, is a house, let's say, um, the foundation was laid for us by other people. Um, and yeah, in some sense, we also like, we kind of, our house kind of stands on the foundation of people who came before, like your parents and your grandparents were both really you know, central in the church. I'm sure your great grandparents were too, and so on and so forth, I don't know. Um, so we have a foundation that goes very deep, a lot of us. But the, the nature of that is, is that foundation was built by other people. So we have to go back and inspect, kind of get underneath our house and kind of look at it and say, ooh, this part's rotted out. Like, I, I kind of need to, like, revisit that. I kind of need to fix that. Um, and so, anyway, it's good stuff. All right, so let's move on. The power of faith does not come from faith itself, but from the almighty, holy, and loving God, and from the sufficient work of Jesus in whom our faith is placed. So it's not like some magical incantation that... You know, you say, open sesame, and then it's, it's this magical thing. I mean, the, the faith, it's not necessarily the faith itself or our decision to believe that saves us. It's the power of God that, that acts in that moment. Okay. Um, and then also this, this obedience portion, number three here. Faith pr uh, produces obedience. It has been said that a faith that saves is a faith that obeys, which is sort of a play on this idea, like it's not enough to just believe. You've got to also trust. And so... I read all the lyrics from Trust and Obey, which is this classic hymn, and I'm not going to read all the lyrics, but I do like the refrain of Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So to really, you know, I think you were just saying, like, if anything you could get from tonight was to, to have a love for Jesus or to find joy in Jesus, um, if that's the thing that you could get out of tonight, that's kind of what that song is saying. Um, I think for me and also for a lot of us who are control freaks, sure a lot of us are. 
I know I am, is the control thing is tough to give up. Like, even if it's just like the remote control, like that's like, it's like hard for me to want to give that up or like what restaurant we're going to, what movie we're going to see, like it's difficult. So when it comes to faith and like really trusting and obeying, like that's the only way you can be happy in Jesus. That's not holy writ, you know, but it's a good song. Um, it, it's true that control is an issue. And so I, the uh, analogy I give is like the little shopping cart at Kroger that's got like the car. There's only a few of them, so you got to get lucky if you're going to get the thing. But you can plop your kid in it and they can act like they're steering the shopping cart. The Simpsons opens with Maggie. She's like driving the car, she thinks, you know. Um, should I not use a Simpsons reference? I'm sorry. Um, but the same is kind of true. Like, we think that we're in control of our lives. We think that the things that happen in our lives are because we do it, and then we'll thank God for it, you know, but we think we're in control. And, and the truth is, is that we're not. And God is, is steering this cart behind us, and we're sitting there like, you know, <laughs> a honk on a little horn. And it, it's kind of laughable. So we got we to give that up. We got to give that up. All right, so here's the biblical pattern of salvation, you know, in the, in the Church of Christ. Nobody always reference the Church of Christ. I know not everyone in here is, and that is perfectly fine. I want to make that very clear. If you're listening, that's all fine. We're not trying to like, but in the Church of Christ, there's like the five, and David would know this better than I would, but you've got to hear, and then you've got to believe, you've got to repent, confess, and be baptized. That's like the, the five steps, right? What do we call that? Is there like a name for it? David's probably five got like steps. five steps. Okay, yeah. David's probably got like 10 things you could call that, but it's just like it's the pattern of salvation, let's say. And so we're hearing, and then you've got to have faith, repent, confess, and be baptized. So a verse for each of those. So faith. Romans 3.25. Who is it? Me. You. Oh, no, you're good. Um, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Sorry, right. so to be received by faith. Uh, and then repentance, Luke 13.3. It is. It is. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. All right, and then confession, you'll get this one. Um, you need to repent of missing that verse. And then confess. Uh, yeah, Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Okay, so again, we're going to be, you know, called on these things eventually. Um, so we need to confess them now because we're going to be forced to eventually. And then baptism, David, Acts 2.38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, great verse. Um, and so this is no small statement, but our eternal destinies hinge on a biblical response to the gospel, which is a big deal. Um, and so you can't really go through these steps of salvation if you've never heard the gospel. So we need to, we need to tell people about it. And that's the first part of those five, and it's pretty, pretty important, um, to say the least. And so the question is, I think, to everyone in here, I think everyone's responded to the gospel biblically. I think that's probably true. Um, if there's someone that happens to be listening out there and you haven't, it's, it's something that you can do. It doesn't re require an act of Congress. That can be something you, know, you decide to do. So... Uh, get in contact with us, I guess. Um, and then on to the last question. So bring it home, David. All right. So we've said there's five questions. Uh, of course, there's different ways to explain the gospel, but I, I like this way to do it. Kind of like five big questions that really everyone ought to ask, you know, whether you're a Christian or not. You ought to 
be asking who's God? Is there a God? That ought to be a question you know, that, that you, a, a thoughtful, examined person would ask of their life. Who am I? You know, are you the product of, of time plus chance? Are you uh, created by you know, ancient gods? Are you created in the image of God and responsible to Him? Um, you know, we, we try to give a biblical answer to these questions. Who is Jesus? I think any person in the world, there's this guy that lived sometime in the first century A.D. that like that changed the whole world. And a couple of billion people are following him now. I think there is no um, examined system of life that doesn't have to account in some way for Jesus. And so I think that's a question that every introspective person ought to ask. Who is Jesus? And then what is faith? This is the fourth question. What are you going to put your trust in? What do you, what do you believe about life and what, and what are you trusting for your life? And then the, the fifth question we think everybody ought to ask is, is death the end? And so I don't think um, that there is a person who's tried to live a, a thoughtful, examined life that hasn't wondered, you know, when I take my last breath, what happens next? You know, what happens in the next moment? No one's ever been to a funeral who hasn't pondered, you know, what is that individual who lived, is, you know, that body's no longer alive, what is, what is happening to that person? And so the gospel has, I think, a profound answer to this question, is death the end, with humongous implications. If the gospel is true, the answer to this question um, makes complacency not an option. It kind of drives us to live for something bigger than ourselves. So our eternal destiny is dependent upon our response to Jesus. So these are kind of big statements, but I, I believe them. And uh, I, as I've thought through them, I think, I think they're biblical and I think they're true. So every person on the planet is a forever person. Our existence will not cease when our body takes its last breath, but will continue into eternity. So several verses about eternity here. Ecclesiastes 3. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. That just sounds so beautiful and almost self-evident. Like He has also set eternity in the human heart. That's something that our heart ponders. You know, what is eternity? Okay, next we have Daniel 12. I just want to show there that this idea of, of the dead rising in an eternal judgment is not just a New Testament idea. There's a, an Old Testament kind of prelude to the gospel. All right, Matthew 25. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. All right, and 1 Corinthians 15. So our eternal condition will be determined by our relationship to God. This relationship is justified through faith in Jesus. So that's, that's the gospel. You're going to live forever. And what your eternal existence is like is going to be dependent on your response to what Jesus did for you to satisfy the wrath of God. In, in that act of, of love, what Jesus did... Kind of compels us who've received it to live differently. 
So Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality through the gospel. I love this verse. 2 Timothy 1. So the last thing I want to leave this whole series, I guess this is our sixth week, um, seventh week of the Bible study, our sixth week in the series, finishing up, you know, what is the gospel series, would be that eternity is urgent. So I think it is easy um, to kind of do your Monday, tomorrow you'll do your Tuesday, and you think about the bills you got to pay or the you know, what your future is going to look like. And we just think about so many things. The pace of our life makes it really easy to spend a lot of time thinking and working on things that ultimately aren't going to matter. The truth is you are going to exist 10,000 years from right now. And so if that's true, we don't have time to waste our lives on superficial topics and ideas. We have a gospel to share and eternity is hanging in the balance. And so what I'd say, um, kind of echoing what Kyle was saying earlier, if you look around this room and even think about you know, people you know, we're in a kind of a weird spot in human history through God's providence. There's never been a generation of people that had um, more material wealth than we have. Um, there's maybe never been a generation of people that had more access to the gospel ability to understand what God's message has been to humankind. And um, I think with those opportunities come a profound responsibility to make a difference, not just to make this world better and more comfortable for those less fortunate, which is part of living out the gospel. I think we ought to be a part of that. But to make a difference for eternity. So you can, you have the ability right now, tonight, to decide to live a life that ripples into eternity. You can, you can live in a way that most people in human history couldn't live. Most people in human history um, live lives of sustainment. We want to farm so we can eat dinner tonight. And we want to make sure we keep our family safe from war and poverty and the animals and the elements. You're living a life where you're going to drive and you're, you know, by the, the rest of the world's standards and certainly by historical standards, unbelievably nice car down these beautiful roads to a climate-controlled, safe home and um, then pursue educations that's going to make you economically and materially blessed beyond the wildest imaginations of most humans ever. And so the question is, if you believe the gospel, what are you going to do with those blessings? And I believe that God could change the world, could change the course of history through a committed group of people who said, I'm going to live for something bigger than my 401k and planning to retire five years early and um, you know, buy a beach house and, and move there and read, read a novel on the beach and then die, and that's it. Um, we can literally shake the nations for the glory of God because of the unique kind of place and coincidences of history that you're born in America in you know the late 20th century, and most people weren't. <laughs> and because that happened to you, I think you've got an incredible responsibility. And I think that's one thing that's cool about a group like this is we can kind of share what that responsibility means and kind of pattern out what that lifestyle would look like that lived that way.
So appreciate you guys. I hope that uh, this series was meaningful. Um, it's, uh, it's been special to us to plan it. So thank you all. So I want to thank David for leading an excellent group tonight. Uh, it, was, it was David that spent, I don't know, 100 hours or more over the past few years putting this together. We originally taught this series in uh, some reach groups, some small studies that we did uh, with our class and also taught it in that class. And then again here in kind of a renewed and condensed form to some degree. And man, it's just really great stuff. And so if this is the first time you're hearing the gospel, I hope it's had an impact on you. And there's more to be done with this knowledge and with these questions and there's more to wrestle with and, and more conclu conclusions to come to. Um, and so if this is a thing where this has sparked interest in you, uh, man, give us a call, contact us, come see us at our group. We meet Monday nights at 7 p.m. typically, occasionally at 6 for dinner. We'd love to continue these conversations with you. With that in mind, next Monday we'll be moving into a new series called False Doctrines. And uh, we're going to do an introduction next week. I'm going to teach on that. And the idea is, is that our culture largely determines the way that people think. And so that has an influence on how the church thinks. And, uh, you know, ultimately it has an influence on how Christianity thinks. And so you see a lot of people do things in the name of Christianity that Jesus would be ashamed of. And so we want to look at a few of those things and sort of kind of recalibrate the way that we think about important issues that have an influence on our culture. So I'm very, very excited about that series. It's going to be a five-week series. After that, we're going to study mere Christianity. So C.S. Lewis's book, if you've never read that. So really great stuff coming up. So again, if you're out there and you're thinking, ah, I'd like to go, I'm not so sure, please come join us. Monday nights at 7. I promise it's worth your time to come out here, to hang out, to have some dessert, spend some time together. Um, and if you just want to listen, that's great too. We, lo we love that this is having an influence on you. And uh, just wish you all the best. So have a great week. If you're studying for a test, I hope it goes really well. I hope you're able to study and stay focused. And man, I just, I just wish all the best to you. God bless you and everything. And we'll see you soon.